theyeshiva.net. At the end of Parshas Noyach, there is a fascinating story that I want to reflect upon with you today. The flood has concluded, the planet, the entire earth has been devastated by the mabel, by the flood. Noyach and his family are lone survivors, surviving in the Teva, in the ark that he built. And as he and his family emerge from the ark, as the Medrash puts it, Olam Chadash Ra, he sees a new world, quite literally a new world. What happens next? The first project that Noyach engages in after the flood, the Torah says, Vayachel Noyach Isha Adama Vayita Karim. Noyach now commences a new project. The man of the earth, as he is called, Isha Adama, the man of the earth, plants a vineyard. He harvests his vineyard. The grapes he pre- turns into wine. He drinks the wine. He becomes inebriated, drunk, intoxicated. He uncovers himself within his tent. So Noyach now, the man who really saved humanity, saved, he was the lone survivor of civilization and saved humanity and all of the animal species, is now drunk, uncovered in his tent. What happens next? The Torah says... He had three sons, Shem, Cham, and Yafis. Vayar Cham Avichran as Ervas Achiv, as Ervas Aviv. Cham, one of his boys, sees the beardness, the nakedness of his father, and he goes and he shares it with the other two brothers outside. He tells them what he has seen. What happens next, the Torah describes that the two remaining brothers, and I'm going to say the Pasuk, the verse, it's Parshas Noyach, Genesis 9, verse 23. Bereshis Tes, Pasuk Chav Gimel. Vayikach, listen to the words. Vayikach, Shem, Vayefes, Es Hasimla. Shem and Yefes, the other two brothers, took the garment. They obviously want to cover and honor their father. Vayasimu al Shechem Shnehem. They place it upon both of their shoulders. Vayelchu achiranis, and they walked backwards. Vayechasu es ervasavia, and they covered their father's beerness. Ufneem achiranis, their faces are backwards. Vayervasaviam loiro, they never saw the beerness, the nakedness of their father. That's the end of the story. Noyach wakes up and shares his disappointment with Cham and his blessings to the other two brothers, Shem and Yafes. And that's the last story we know about Noyach. Ultimately, the few verses later, the Torah says that Noyach passed away at the age of 950 years. There's two questions I want to focus on in this story. 
one general, and one specific. Let's begin with the specific question. Any student of Torah knows that every word in Torah is precise, meticulous. Every word is written with precision and with intent. If a word could have been written even in a shorter way, and it's not, there's a reason for it. There's a lesson, there's a law. Many laws and mitzvahs are derived from extra sentences and even extra words or extra additional or superfluous letters. When you listen to this verse, the same thing is repeated three times. It says, Shem and Yafas, who heard about their father's disgrace from their brother Cham, took a garment, a simla, a shirt, a tunic, a garment, and placed it on their shoulders. And they're walking backwards. The message is clear. They're walking backwards because we understand. They don't feel it's their place to look and gaze and see their father's shame. So they walk backwards. And indeed, they cover his beardness with this garment. But then the Torah repeats, And their faces are backwards. Well, obviously, they're walking backwards. Their faces are backwards. And then, And they did not see the nakedness. Obviously, if you're walking backwards, you can't see what's behind. You don't have eyes in the back. Rashi, Rabbeinu Shloyma Yitzchaki, the greatest biblical commentator, addresses the first redundancy. If it says they're walking backwards, why does it say their faces were also backwards? If it says, why add? So Rashi says, gives us a very simple and wonderful interpretation. Rashi says, why does it say a second time if we know that they walked backwards? Obviously, their faces were turned away from their father. The answer is, Rashi says at some time, at some point they had to turn around. How are you going to cover your father if you're walking backwards? I mean, you could throw it over your head, but you're going to miss him, or at least part of him, unless you have unique aim, but even aim won't help because you don't even know where he is because you never saw him. You're walking backwards all the time. So at some point, the two brothers have to turn around facing their father in order to cover him with the garment. So when they come to their father, when they come close to him, and they have to turn around in order to place the garment on Noyach's body, at this point, their body is facing him, but they still turn their faces around. Their faces, they make an about face, not to gaze at him while they're covering him. So that's a very important emphasis. They walked backwards a whole time. When they came to him, they turned around, but they still turned their faces back as they covered him, but now they can cover him because the rest of their body is facing their father. Yet, right after that, the Torah says, ervas aviyam loiro. They did not see the nakedness of their father. Now, obviously, when you're walking backwards, you can't see what is behind you. When your face is turned around, you can't see. Your eyes are in your face. Yet the Torah feels the need to tell us clearly, they did not see it, which is obvious and it seems excessive. It seems superfluous and unnecessary. 
Now one might say it's just stylistic to highlight the contrast. About Chum it says, Vayar Chum Avichnan. Chum, the father of Knan, one of the sons of Noyach, saw. So in contrast, the Torah finishes, and they did not see. He saw, and they did not see. And yet, the structure of Torah is not that way, to always contrast it in style, but rather there is always some message that's being conveyed, because the message would have been very clear, the story would have been very clear without those extra words, ervas avihem loira'u. But as we shall see, these four words really capture a major theme of this story. That they did not see the beerness, the exposure of their father's body. Which brings us to a more general question, and that is, Noyach lived 950 years. As the Torah says in the beginning of the portion, he was 500 years of age when the flood happened. Flood was a year. So after the flood, he lived <laughs> for a nice amount of time, almost 450 years. What did he do for 450 years? I don't know. Huh? <laughs> so it takes, it takes some time to plant a vineyard, no question. It takes some time to drink. It takes a few minutes to... Uh, Remove garments. But 450 years, what did he do? I don't know. This is one story we know about 450 years. Which is of course true about most of Torah. Adam lived for more than 900 years. 930 years. Mr. Shelech lived for 969 years. Yared lived for 962 years. I don't even know one thing they did. At least with Noyach, we know he built an ark for 120 years. And by the way, humanity has to get ready to think about this stuff. Because in the last century, the lifespan has been literally doubled from 40 to almost 70 or 80. Women uh, six or seven years uh, more than men, usually. And uh, most scientists are saying that within the next century, the lifespan may increase very, very dramatically. Some are already predicting 150 years. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? People retire at 65. What do they do for the next 100 years? By the way, it means your mother-in-law also lives till 150. Everybody lives till 150. Right? So uh, it's just an interesting thing to talk about, to think about. And a positive thing to think about as well. So the point, of course, is that the Torah is not a book. It's not a diary of what they did throughout their life. We know a few stories about Adam. We know a few stories about Noyach. Even Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, we know a few stories about them. What Avram did for 175 years, we don't know every story. We don't know what every day looked like. We know a few days what they looked like. And the reason is because the Torah is not a regular book of history. It's genre or a diary of, of certain individuals or heroes or our patriarchs or matriarchs or the fathers and mothers of civilization. But rather, it's the name tells us what its genre is. That Zohar says that Torah comes from the word like mora, a mora, a teacher. Torah milashin hoira. The Maral explains this. The Radak explains that it comes from Zohar. My ikra Torah begin the uri. Torah means teachings, laharot, 
like a lesson, which we call a moira, a mora, which is a teacher, an educator. In other words, all of its stories serve as a blueprint for life, as a roadmap for things that are relevant throughout human history until this very day. What is the significance of this story about Noach and how his children responded? There's two parts of the story, what happened to him, but we're focusing on how his children responded. What is the significance? What is the timeless and eternal lesson of this contrast? There is a fascinating teaching that comes from the Baal Shem Tov. Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov said the following, and it's quoted by his students, the Toldos Yaakov Yosef in Parshas Truma, and another disciple of his disciple, Rabbi Nachum of Chernobyl, who has a sefer called Mo'eri Nayim, in Parshas Chukas. They both quote the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov made a fascinating statement. He said that the people that we meet and people that we see are essentially mirrors. When I look at you, when I look at another person, I'm looking at a mirror. And thus, he says, if I see a blemish in another person, a flaw, a problem, it's like I see a blemish in the mirror. Sometimes I can blame the mirror. (laughs) But that's pretty pathetic if the mirror is clean. I have to look at myself. And thus he concludes, V'lochein, I quote, HaTzadik HaGamur, Shum Doifi B'Shum Adam The really righteous and worked out person doesn't see any blemish in any person. Because the blemishes and flaws and problems and issues I see in you are really a mirror of me. So if I don't have them, I will not see them in you. If I do have them, I will see them in you. And the meaning of this is, of course, there's a famous interpretation of his, the Mishnah says, In halacha, when it comes to leprosy, one needed a kohen to come and examine the symptoms and give the verdict. Can a kohen examine his own leprosy? Let's say a kohen has the symptoms of tsaras, of leprosy, ancient biblical leprosy. Can he examine his own symptoms and say, I'm pure, I'm impure. So the Mishnah says in Tractate Nagoyim, Kala Nagoyim Adam Raya Chutzmi A Kayan is allowed to look at everybody else's leprosy besides his own. So there is a spiritual interpretation by the Baal Shem Tev. Kala Nagoyim Adam Raya. People see blemishes everywhere. Chutzmi besides their own. Just human nature. There's always the blind spot. You know, when you're driving a car, they teach you the rear view mirror is very, very effective and important, but there's going to be a blind spot. And that blind spot, you're simply not going to see. Be cautious. Everything looks right and everything looks normal, but the brain has a certain blind spot. This is true psychologically. I see everybody's blemishes. So, what does God do for me? God allows me to see, I have to work on something. So Hashem allows me to see something in somebody else. And really it's an invitation for me to look back at myself and see what is going on in myself and help repair it and fix it within my own character, which will also eliminate me seeing it in others, which comes back 
coming back to the Mishnah again, we would reinterpret it homiletically and say, All the blemishes I say I see outside of myself come from come from me. Because the other human is a mirror. So when I walk around, when I meet people, when I speak to people, when I encounter people, I'm basically looking at mirrors. What I see in you is simply a reflection of what is going on in me. This was a teaching of the Baal And yet, it needs to be seriously studied and understood. What does this really mean? Are we supposed to truly take this seriously? I could understand that sometimes I see something and it's a reflection of me. But the Baal says that Sadiq doesn't see any blemishes in anybody. Are you going to tell me that that is not some form of apparent naivete? I mean, what happens if I invested money with somebody? <laughs> they come to me with a very enticing offer. You could speak to some of your husbands who have tried it out, or maybe you yourself or other members of your family. And I invest a lot of money in this grand offer. And it turns out, Nishgesteigen or Nishgefleigen, the person unfortunately lied and deceived me and caused me a financial loss. What happens if I hire a lawyer for a certain project? I pay him money, and the man simply doesn't show up, doesn't respond, doesn't do anything, and causes me or anybody a major potential financial loss, or such similar things. And I see a blemish in a person. I encounter immorality, vile behavior, no menschlichkeit, deception, and dishonesty. Does it mean I am a liar? I am dishonest because I saw it in somebody else? Can we really say that? What if I see somebody abusing their spouse or their children, neglecting them, or behaving in an obnoxious and rude fashion? Does it mean that if I am not guilty of the same or a similar problem, I would not see it? Does that even make sense within a context of Judaism? There's a verse in Parshish Kedoshim, we all know it, Rebuke, chastise your fellow. You have to know how to do it, when to do it, what, the, what methods to use. But if I'm a, such a good person, I don't see anything, how can I rebuke, how can I chastise? In Gemara there's a famous expression, Kol limchas micha, reyacha. A person has a collective responsibility, not only an individual responsibility. I have to stand up to injustice. When somebody sees injustice, any form of injustice, they are obligated to stand up to it, not to bury their heads in the sand, give a krecht, give a sigh and say, there's nothing to do. This is how it is. Welcome to humanity. One's responsibility towards their fellow, towards society is to be able to stand up to every form of injustice and not dismiss it and not ignore it when suffering is happening in front of my eyes or in the presence of my ears. Comes the Balshendam and says, no, 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 it's all about you. So something we have to understand what the Balshemtiv here means. Obviously he couldn't mean this literally because he himself chastised people. He did it in his own unique way. But he himself 
spoke to people about their challenges, about their flaws, about their mistakes. People came to him. And even if they didn't come to him, he spoke to people. It's a mitzvah. But the truth is that what the Balshamtiv meant was something much deeper than that. And that is, it depends what I'm seeing in the other person. It depends how I'm seeing it in the other person. And let me change the subject for a moment, not really change the subject, but give another example. There's another verse in Parshas Noyach that's very interesting, which also becomes a source of moral instruction in Jewish life. That when Hashem tells Noyach to bring in all the animals into the ark, saving them from the flood, He wants him to bring in each species, a peer, a couple, male and female, of every single type of domesticated and undomesticated beast, every type of bird, into the ark. How they can all fit into the Teva is a wonderful question raised by the Ramban and many other commentators. Not for this class. But the way the Torah uses the expression, it says, Min Noyach should bring in every animal that is tahir, means kosher, we would call kosher. And every animal that is not tahir, that is not kosher. And the Gemara, the Talmud in Tractate Psachim, page 3, Dav Gimel asks, the Torah, knowing for its attempt to be meticulous and precise and brief, and concise, I should say, should have used the words, Hatmeya means, Hatmeya, the non-kosher. Instead, the Torah uses, Instead of five letters, uses 13 letters. Which in Torah Shabbat Sav is something that always requires explanation. If you could say it straight, why say it in an indirect way? The behema, the animal that is not pure, instead of saying the animal that is impure. Much shorter. Hatmeya versus Hashem And from this, the Talmud, the Gemara, learns out the famous teaching, A person should always attempt to verbalize, to communicate in what we would call refined language. In Yiddish, the word would be mitan edelkeit. You speak edel. Edel means... You use refined words, subtly. Instead of using words that are brute and heavy and negative. Negative, you want to use positive language, beautiful language, elegant language, eloquent language. Eloquent not only in terms of language, but eloquent in terms of sensitivity, of morality, of edelkeit, menschlichkeit. So when the Torah could use the word, asher einena tahira, it would prefer that than to use the word Tameh. Tameh, of course, has a negative connotation. Tameh means contaminated, vile, impure. Tameh. It has a negative connotation. Einena Tahira means it's not Tahir. The message is the same. So the Torah is ready to use extra superfluous words to teach us this lesson of Lashanakiya, clean verbal language. The message could be the same, but it's how you communicate. You could say the same thing in pure language, and you could say the same thing in more blemished language. Or I should say, impure language.
And then the Gemara goes on in Psachim, page 3, for those who want to look it up, to ask questions on this premise from a verse here and a verse there, a few verses that would seem to undermine this premise. And the Gemara answers them all. And the commentators are astounded. If you open up a Chumash, it says the word Tameh more than a hundred times. <laughs> you read through Chumash, it says Tameh not once, not five times, not twenty times. It's a frequent and common word. More than a hundred times does it say the word Tameh in Chumash. That should be the greatest question the Gemara asks. Later, after the discussion, the Gemara says, Bairaisa Milek Siv Tameh. And gives an answer, but this is immediately a mind-boggling question. What do you mean? You found one place in Noyach Hashem and a Tahira. When you have it more than a hundred times. So the commentators give a very interesting answer. There's a difference between a story in Chumash and a halacha. A story is a narrative. Halacha is law. When the Torah is saying law, it will use the word Tameh. It will make it very clear. So therefore, when the Torah, for example, speaks about the laws of Kashrus, in Parsha Shmini, in Parsha Re'eh, which animals are kosher, which animals are not kosher, it will use frequently the word Tameh. The Torah will speak about, I mentioned before, a leper, a Metzairah, it will frequently use the word Tameh. You're talking about law, not narrative. So it will give the verdict in very clear, emphatic, unambiguous terminology. It wants to employ unambiguous terminology. Unambiguous? Huh? Good. It's important to speak refined, but also you have to say the right words too. But when it comes to narrative, the story of the flood is not a law, it's not a halach, it's a story that happened. It's a narrative. Because it's a narrative here, the Torah doesn't want to use the word Tameh. If it has a choice, it would rather use a more elegant and refined expression. Hence, Hashayinana Torah. That's why the Gemara wasn't bothered by the question that says more than a hundred times. Most places where it says is not story. It's not a narrative. It's a halacha. There it's not a question. Why the Torah uses the word Tameh. Wants to be clear. The question comes up in those few places where it's a story. And still you see the Torah doesn't mind using a word similar, or the word Tameh, that's what the Gemara is addressing. Yet here too we can ask the same question. This is an interesting distinction, but what's the, distinction, but what's the logic? If, what's the difference if you say Tameh or not Tahir? The halacha would still be clear. If somebody says, the man is dead, or somebody says, the man is not living, the message is clear, unfortunately. Instead of saying bad, you could say not good, or the opposite of good. Instead of saying darkness, you could say the antithesis of light, the opposite of light. The message is the same. But the truth is, it's not just a difference between halacha and story. It represents two ways in which you say the word tameh. They have two completely different meanings when it's a story and when it's a halacha. Both in terms of text, in terms of communication, and in terms of relationships. Two people were working in a business. 
employees a fine business. They observed a third employee ripping off the boss blindly. This guy was doing stuff that were illegal, immoral, and shady. He wasn't only ripping off the boss, he was ripping off a lot of other people. And he was really involved, he was using his position in the business to do things that were inappropriate financially. Both employees who worked with this man noticed it. They both saw the same story, both of them. Their responses were completely different. And I'm going to describe the two responses of two individuals working in a company, watching a third employee doing things that were morally and legally inappropriate in terms of finances. One of them was not only furious and angry, but he was repeating in his head the story again and again. And the message he kept on telling himself is, this guy, he appears as a very fine, upstanding person. He is such a lowlife. He is so filthy. He is, in his expression to me, the scum of the earth. I know it's not the Lush and Nakia, but I want to bring out a point. I want to bring out a halacha. The, the filth of the earth. Vermin. Vermin. With some other graphic language I'm not going to. I'll spare you today. Especially as we're talking about how to communicate. Burning. He tried to contain himself a little bit, but at some point he couldn't. He plotzed. And of course, to anybody, people he knew, people he almost knew, people he, he got to know, he was just outraged about what this person has done. Okay. Response number one. Response number two. Another fellow working in the same company saw exactly the same thing. Sits down with me. Shares the story without a name. Very calmly, he says, I want to know what is my moral duty at this moment. Who do I call? Do I call the police? Do I call my boss? Do I tell other workers? Do I tell people who are doing business with them? What do I do? I, I know this information. I'm privy to it. What is my moral responsibility? Very, very calm very focused on how to deal with this, and especially that his boss is really being ripped off blindly and he wants to make a stop, so he just wants to know what's the best approach. He realized he has to do something, and he asked, or maybe I shouldn't mix in. Maybe that shows not my business, I shouldn't mix in. None of them were naive, but their response was completely different. Two couples... Both husbands love having guests for Shabbos. But not one. Ten. Fifteen. Twenty. I don't mean to remind you of sukkahs and everything. <coughs> they both love having guests for Shabbos. Both of them. They're social butterflies, or they like to think they're social butterflies. They're social animals, or they like to think they're social animals. They like to lead a table, and, and shmuas, and sing, and and discuss, and dissect, and have a geschmacken, nice, big Shabbos meal with a lot of guests. Both of their wives 
have a difficult time having guessed. It's an experience. Meaning it's an experience means, as you would say in Yiddish, San Ibelebenish. It's not a simple thing to have guessed. And it's hard for them, and it's, they get stressed out and overwhelmed. If they know there's going to be guests for Shabbos already, Tuesday they're not functioning well. And it's a source of contention. It's a source of contention, I would say, or some contention. I mean, there's some more serious sources of contention in life, but it's some source of contention in the marriage. Both men have a conversation about their wives about this. In this context, they want advice. One husband, and you'll forgive me, but we want to share the story the way it happened. One husband says, you know, my wife, her insecurities are just horrible. And she could never get it together. Everything is a big deal. Everything is a disaster. He is burning in fury and ire and anger. And I can't deal with this anymore. Why is she so sick? She's crazy. She probably needs medication. Why did I marry such an insecure person? She's so frightened from guests. She says, oh, your guest is going to come in and the house is not perfect. As though she's going to melt like butter in a frying pan. And she's so afraid that there's not enough food and the food is not good. And there's not enough bread and there's not enough for the kids. And the house is not tidy and the guests don't this. And she's so self-conscious. Everything is self-conscious. Like why is she, Why does she hate herself so, so much that every guest that comes to the house is an absolute dreaded nightmare for a week before? That's one husband's response and in a moment of anger he says all this to her the other husband also asks advice about the same thing he wants guests and this is how he put it he says you know (coughs) my wife finds it very difficult to have guests she told me many times it's difficult and I'm wondering what's the best way because I really love guests Is it an unreasonable expectation? You think I should hire more help? You think I can discuss it with her? How do you think I can reach a place where we can have guests for Shabbos? Is she right? Am I right? Are we both right? Are we both wrong? But maybe you could guide me and help me deal with this situation. What do you think is the difference between the two husbands? And what do you think is the difference between the two men at work? What do you think is the difference? I can't say for sure. But I want to give one perspective. Maybe it's fully right. Maybe it's partially right. Maybe there's a grain of truth here. The husband who got so angry at his wife about the guests, he's also uncomfortable with guests. She is bringing up within him his own insecurities. The way they respond to their insecurities are different. His wife is honest about her insecurities or work or whatever it is. He's not. The way he's dealing with it is, I want 20 people at the table so I could tell myself that I'm sociable. 
I could tell myself that I'm an upstanding member of the community. I could tell myself that I'm popular. I could tell myself that I'm loved. I can get the validation and approval of 10 or 5 or 20 people telling me and their friends what a good time they had. He is also extremely self-conscious. He is not comfortable and free and uninhibited around that table. When his wife talks to him about her uncomfort, it triggers within him that which he repressed many, many years ago. And his only way of dealing with it is by covering it over completely. Or it triggered something else that's deep, deep inside of him, where the other husband actually is very calm. And he wants to know what is the proper thing in order to be able to fulfill his dream in this particular area. Back to the business. The fellow who is cursing out the other person of what a horrible, horrible human being he is, deep down, he may be jealous that he is just making his money (laughs) and his salary and this other person somehow managed to manipulate the system or he may be harboring similar dreams or similar ambitions or he may have once done something similar, tried to do it, but it failed. What he sees in this person is bringing up within him unresolved layers of his own identity. My anger to you has little to do with you. It has to do with my peacelessness within myself. You're just triggering so many stuff with the other person, the other worker, actually was very wholesome. And therefore, he wasn't naive. But his question was, what is my moral responsibility? There is a crime going on here. In other words, the criminal was not living in his brain. The first person, the criminal, was living in his brain. It was like a scratch CD that's living in his brain, playing the story over and over again. He's a scoundrel. He's a ganav. He's a lowlife. He's a horrible, horrible person. Why are you allowing that person to live in your brain 24 hours a day rent-free? At least charge him rent. Brooklyn prices. He's living in my brain, of course, because his story is my story. Because it's in my brain. The other person, there's a certain detachment. I am I, he is he. I have seen this. What do I do? Do I go to my... I gave him the advice that I thought he should do. And somebody to consult about this. But that's irrelevant. His approach was completely different. Let's now go back to the Baal Shem Tov statement. The Baal Shem Tov says, when I see something in another person, it's a reflection of me. It's a mirror. What about, he says, the tzaddik doesn't see evil in other people. What do you mean? What if a person does something negative? Does it mean I did it? I see somebody lying in my face, it means I did it? What the Baal Shem Tov is saying is, it depends what you see. And this is the difference between the halacha and the story. Am I seeing a story or am I seeing a halacha? Sometimes I see something and my emotional response is, what should be my calling at this moment? Do I have to protect myself? Do I have to protect my children? Do I have to protect my family? Do I have to protect this person's family? Do I have to protect the community? Do I have to? My question is very goal-oriented. 
what is my responsibility at this moment? How can I help? What does God want from me at this moment? What's the Rebbeinu Shaloylam's calling to me at this moment? I have seen this. I have heard this. That's my focus. That's one response. That's one way I see the story. But then there is another way I see the story. I see something in you. And suddenly your issues become alive in my brain day and night. Suddenly I find myself describing you. Suddenly you're living in my head. People are living in my head and I'm analyzing them to myself or to other people. And I have opinions and perspectives and I'm angry and I'm jealous and I'm furious and I'm resentful and I'm annoyed and I'm whatever. Finish the adjective. This, says the Baal has nothing to do with the other person. (laughs) It all has to do with me. Because no person's behavior could make me angry. It's my thoughts about your behavior that make me angry. It's what I'm processing. You said something. You did something. Don't ever delude yourself that what somebody says or does has put you into a particular mood. I know it's hard to think this way, but it's true. And people who embrace this honestly live a completely different quality of life, much deeper, much more honest, much more divine, much more wholesome, much more holistic, and also much more productive and impactful. My emotional response to you is always about how I think about what you said. What I heard, not what you said, what I heard you say. Two people can hear the same statement from the same person. One person freaks out. The other person doesn't even notice it. (laughs) You can see it with your husband all the time. He doesn't even know that person came to you on Shabbos. One person doesn't even notice it. What this means is not that they're right or they're wrong. They may be 100% wrong. What it means is I have to look into myself. What is it triggering within me? What happened within me? What's the history? What is the unresolved trauma or pain or insecurity or baggage or luggage or resentment or hate or lack of self-esteem or complete disregard for myself that your statement or your behavior is triggering? Again, this doesn't mean the other person is right. But what the Baal Shem Tev is saying is, when suddenly you find yourself describing the other person in your life, when their character is now overwhelming me, when I'm walking around thinking, I can't believe who this person is and what they did and what they say, and you develop this whole, this whole, you write an encyclopedia about them in three hours. Some of us write encyclopedias about other people. You know what I'm talking about? And we have files and entries, and it goes in for good. It goes in for 20, 30 years. I really have to go into myself and say, Whew, wow, take a deep breath. <laughs> what did I just find in myself? This was an opportunity for self-awareness. This was an opportunity for self-discovery. Now, as good Jews, you may take this in a very guilty way. <laughs> Meaning, okay, next time somebody says something obnoxious, I'm guilty. It's actually not about guilt. It's about empowerment. It's about the ability to be able 
to get to know my pnimius, my core in a much deeper fashion. But now here's the question. What if you're really seeing something, somebody doing something obnoxious or being rude? Unfortunately, we live in a world where people sometimes behave in a rude fashion. There's a reason that the Torah says, you're not allowed to gossip, and you're not allowed to lie, and you're not allowed to steal, and you're not allowed to murder, and you're not allowed to commit adultery, because this is what people do. (laughs) If we wouldn't do it, there wouldn't be guidelines not to do it. We do it. And what if I see it? What if I observe it? And let's say I'm not biased. What if I'm honest and I see this? But my response would be completely different. My response would be halachic rather than story-like. Is it a story I'm seeing or is it a halacha I'm seeing? If it's a story I'm seeing is now your issues have become my issues. You know why? Because they are my issues. But then I could see it differently. I could see it simply as a calling. Okay, this is what's going on. What do I do at this moment? This is a very different response. I'm not naive at all. I have to make this call, I have to send this email, I have to send this text, I have to respond this way, I have to be quiet, I shouldn't be quiet, I ought to give this advice. Whatever the appropriate thing is, maybe I have to protect myself. That's a response. Maybe I have to create boundaries. Maybe this relationship is not going to work. Maybe we have to sever the bond because it's toxic and it's dysfunctional. The response may be very, very varied may be very positive, may unfortunately be a situation where I have to say I'm clueless or I'm weak or I'm incompetent to do anything about it. That may be the situation. You have to know. And you have to have somebody to give you good objective feedback. But it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different, it's a whole different story. What I'm seeing is the calling to me. I'm not seeing your issues, your problems, your filth, your blemishes. So the Baal Shem Tev says, if you see somebody else's blemishes, look at yourself. If you see a calling to you, if you see your responsibility, that's a moment, that's another moment in life that's guiding me towards what God wants me to do at this very moment. And that's why when it comes to halacha, the Torah uses the word tame, unbashfully. When it comes to a story, the Torah won't use the word Tameh. The Torah will use the word Natar. You know why? Because when I say the word Tameh in Halacha, I'm not describing the animal. I'm describing my responsibility. When I say the word Tameh in a story, I'm describing the person or the animal I'm talking about in the story. Even an animal, imagine. Even an animal. A Halacha, I'm not just saying, ooh, this animal, this horse, evil, impure. No, you're not allowed to eat it. I'm not supposed to eat a horse. Ride a horse. Enjoy a horse. Use a horse for what you can use a horse. Tame means it's a law for me. A Jew doesn't eat horse meat. That's what Tame means. You say, this house, this keli is Tame. It needs to go to the mikveh. I'm not describing the vessel. I'm not saying the vessel is... is, is The vessel needs to go to the mikvah. The person needs to go to the mikvah. Tumah and Tara was part of Jewish life. It's a responsibility to me. It's what my role at this moment is. When it's a story, it's different. When I say Tameh in a story, it's a story. It's not a law. So what's the Tameh in a story? I'm describing the animal. 
this animal is tummy, this the Torah will not do. What's my business? What's going on by you? If I can help, that's my focus. Analyzing you, getting upset at you, living with you in my brain, telling myself how obnoxious, horrible, sick person you are, is because I am. I am unfortunately still suffering. And that's what I have to address. I have to address the fact that I am not at peace. I am not at peace. He was not at peace with those guests Friday night. If he would have been, he would have wondered with curiosity, what is my wife going through? What does guest mean for my wife? Let me tr- it's actually an interesting thing. <laughs> what does guest mean for And let's try to work it out. You make a deal once a month, twice a month, a certain amount, hire help, hire food. What... <laughs> We're talking about. We're talking about. I'm talking about if it's two healthy people. If one of them is unhealthy, it's a whole different situation. I'm talking about two people who are reasonable, who are rational, who want to create a marriage that is productive. Obviously, I probably don't have to explain that, but I'm explaining that anyway. In other words, the baseline has to be one of we want to work it out, not we want to fight. We want to create as much dysfunction as possible, which some people are interested in that. But we're not going to talk about their stories now. <laughs> we have to talk about halacha. And this is something I always have to listen to in my brain. Your husband tells you something. Your wife tells you something, for the people who are listening. Your child tells you something. With children, it gets tricky. Because they really live in us. <laughs> Whether we like it or not. In fact, many of them, I should say all of them, the first... <coughs> period of their life they actually lived inside of you not inside of me but inside of you they lived there they really lived there so separation is not so simple but when I hear something from somebody or I watch something I have to be able to go back to my responses and see what I'm hearing what I'm listening and this is where this information becomes not just valuable, but extraordinarily invaluable. Because I need to listen to what is happening in me. What is it triggering in me? If it's triggering within me, the beginning of an analysis about you, usually a very negative analysis, with a lot of judgment. And of course, judgment comes with guilt. And a lot of negative energy, and a lot of toxicity, and a lot of anger. Of course it was triggered by what you said. But it wasn't really by what you said. It's about what I thought after what you said. Your statement triggered thoughts which resulted in emotions, which resulted in explosions or implosions. Depends how how much you know how to repress. Explosions or implosions, that depends on how you live. And all I have to do at that moment is not judge it and not even get upset at myself, but notice it and say, wow, mm, interesting, interesting. Now I know what God wants me to work on today. It's actually an opportunity. It's difficult, it's challenging, but it's a tremendous opportunity. This whole drasha that I gave, this whole speech that I gave, the Torah says in four words, Shame and Yafes heard that their father is exposed. Their father is beer. 
He's naked. Their brother came out, saw, and ran to tell them. What does the Torah say? What was their first response? Let's get a garment. They took a garment. They put it on their shoulders. They walk backwards. We immediately understand why they're walking backwards. Their brother saw. They don't want to see. Our father had a moment of weakness. He's drunk. He's intoxicated. We don't want to see. There's no need for us to see the shame of our father. It will not help him. It will not help us. We know the problem. We're not naive. Our role at this moment is to cover up his bare body. So they walk backwards. And the Torah continues, what do they do? They cover him. And then the Torah says, And their faces, as they cover him, they turn around to cover him, their faces turn around so they don't see it even when they cover him. That's the physical story. That's the physical description of the story. But then the Torah adds four words. And that's the story. The nakedness of their father they did not see. This is not a description about the physical lack of seeing. That's already clear twice. Walking backwards, turning your face around. Obviously you don't see. We all know that. I don't see right now what is happening behind me. You do. I don't know if there's a guy standing behind me and going like this. Maybe. Somebody once said, just because I'm paranoid, it doesn't mean the whole world is not out to get me. Right? I don't know. I don't see. If I turn around, I'll see. Oh, there's nobody. Okay. There was once a fellow, and uh, he came to a psychiatrist, and he said he's suffering from something. What? He says every night he goes to sleep, and he imagines under his bed there are ghosts and demons and skeletons that are barking. Every night he can't sleep. So the psychiatrist says, not a problem, I can treat this. You have to come once a week, it's going to take four years. Every session will cost you 400 bucks. After four years, you'll be cured. He says, I don't have that money. He says, well, then you'll have to live with this. He says, I can't live with this. I can't sleep at night. He says, well, then you'll have to find the money. Eh. The next day, he's walking in the street. He sees the Rav. He sees the rabbi. He says, Rabbi, I have a major, major issue. Shares the issue. The Rav gives him advice. Months later, he's walking down the street. He sees the psychiatrist. Psychiatrist says, no, what happened? He says, it's all solved. He says, really? What did you do? He says, I went to the rabbi. I met the rabbi. What did the rabbi do? The rabbi said simply, cut off the legs of the bed. I cut off the legs of the bed. Now I sleep on the floor and the demons can't get in. I'm a chayi. He says, wonderful. It's funny, but there's a deep message in this. The complexity of analysis very often has nothing to do with other people. It has to do with me. Sometimes you just got to cut off the legs of the bed and don't let the skeletons come in. So after the Torah describes the physical description, it gets to the punchline. The translation of the words is the nakedness of their father they did not see. Of course they didn't see it. They were walking backwards. No. You could walk backwards and still see it. Sometimes when you walk backwards, you see it even more. 
Because you could tell the whole city, and I walk backwards. I don't speak Lashnara. I don't speak Lashnara. I once told a story to somebody in the crowd says, without names, who was it? Sometimes I walk backwards and I come home and I'm like, That guy is such a low life. But I didn't even look. <laughs> they missed the point. I'm entangled in a way that's hard to get out because now I have the veneer of righteousness eclipsing what is really going on in my brain. Ve'erva saviyam loiro means they didn't see the erva of their father. Not because they were naive. Because that was not their story. Their story was not their father's erva. Their father's shame. Their father's disgrace. Their father's inappropriate behavior. Their father's moral failure. Their father's downfall. That's their father. What I want to do is help bring light into the world. Help bring light into every situation. Sometimes help protect maybe somebody else. But my focus is, what is my calling at this moment? Not because Noyach is a tzaddik. Noyach happened to be a tzaddik. <laughs> but not because the person you're dealing with is impeccable and flawless. It's completely not about guilt. But it's tuning in to where I can maximize my potentials to where my mission begins. Where am I in this situation? And my job in life is not to be the landlord for your issues. My job in life is not to open up my brain for all toxicity in the world to live there just to make me feel better and numb my own unresolved tragedies trauma, childhood or adulthood pain which is going to help nobody and nothing, including not the person I am analyzing incessantly and that's the contrast Chum goes into the tent and the Pasuk says Vayar Chum Chum saw not just physically if Anybody who's in the tent would have seen it physically if, they were, if, the, if their eyes were there. Some things I can't not see. He saw it physically, but he also saw it. He saw it as a description of his father. He saw it as an independent story. He saw his father's shame. And the reason is because Cham himself, Cham himself, as Chazal indicate and intimate and sometimes are explicit, struggled with many unresolved issues and temptations. Cham himself struggled with it. So when he saw his father in a certain situation, it triggered, it triggered very deep emotions. To the point that he had to run and tell his brothers. Why are you telling your brothers? Take a garment and cover your father. You have to have a conversation with your father. Talk to your father by dinner. Say, Tate, we have to have a shmuz. You know, maybe we should go see somebody. Whatever. I don't know who there was to see after the flood, but whatever. We have to figure this out. I mean, it wasn't easy for Noyach. He saw a whole world destroyed and he got drunk. I mean, we can understand him somewhat. People get drunk for a lot smaller reasons than a marble. He ran out to his brothers. He had to go tell his brothers. Why did he have to go tell his brothers? 
He didn't stop and say, why do I have to go tell my brothers? What can I do with this information? Now contrast it to Shemen Yafes. Shemen Yafes. What they saw was the halacha. What they saw was their responsibility. They never saw the evil, the negativity. They never saw this as a descriptive story about my father. What they saw was their calling at that moment, which is why the Chazal say that in the merit of this, Shem's children merited the mitzvah of a talis. Because he covered Noyach with a garment, we merited the mitzvah of a talis. Now it's very charming, but what's the connection? But really, part of it is that the talis is a garment that the Torah says about it, Uri'isem oisoi, uschartem es kol mitzvah Hashem, as it says in the Shema. When the Jew prays and he covers himself over with the talus, he covers himself over with the talus. If he covers with the talus, he can't see. And yet the purpose of the talus is, you should see. Because the question is what you want to see. We live with open eyes. You have to live with open eyes. That's why Tashlich, we go to the fish, and one of the reasons is they don't close their eyes. There are people who live with closed eyes. They don't want to look. It's much easier not to look. Not to look at yourself, not to look at the world, not to look at life. Ignore, 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 ignore. Fish have open eyes. I have to see. The word tzitzis, in fact, on the talus, means sight. One of the, the tzitz means see. Me min hacharakim. It's gazing, it's seeing, it's perspective. The question is, what do you want to see? I could see the truth of reality. I could see the pinimius of reality. I could see the core of reality. And this will bring me closer to my divine core. Or I could see and get distracted with the externals, which will certainly allow me to protect myself and never become truly self-aware. That's the contrast, and that's one of its great lessons. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.